Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. Our guest today is Thomas Singer, and he's a principal researcher in corporate leadership at the Conference Board. And his research focuses on corporate social responsibility, CSR, we hear that a lot, and sustainability issues. And he has just authored a recently released report called Business Transformation and the Circular Economy. And the circular economy is one of those concepts that we're starting to hear more and more about, but for a lot of us, it's it's a concept that's a little bit out of reach. And so what's great about his report and what we're going to talk about today is what the circular economy actually looks like in case studies of companies who have begun to implement circular economy initiatives and some of the lessons that they've learned. So I'm really excited um, to talk about this today. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Thomas. I'm so glad to have you on. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for the opportunity. I'm very excited to to join you in this excellent show and talk a little bit about the circular economy and what it entails. Well, it's really, really cool. And your report does a tremendous job of making this concept much more clear. But before we dive into the conversation about the circular economy and some ways that businesses here in the U.S. are starting to use this business model, I'd like to start by having you help us understand the linear economy model and why that's not sustainable. Yeah, that's a great place to start. I think one of the the best ways of understanding what the circular economy means is really by understanding what the the alternative is, which is the linear economy. Um, You know, the the linear economy is is by far what the majority of business models currently look like. Uh, The linear economy is based on this idea of a take make waste model. If you think about companies, you know, taking raw materials making products out of those, and then essentially creating products that end up either in landfills or, or oceans or otherwise discarded. That, that's, that's the take-make-waste model, which is um, what the linear economy looks like. And like I said, most businesses operate under that standard linear economy model, which has served you know, economic growth well for a number of years, but it's just not sustainable. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons for that is that it's inherently very inefficient as a model. You know, products and materials are just not used uh, to their greatest extent. They're not kept in use for as long as possible. So there's a lot of inefficiency in that model. Now, something else uh, that, that is really a, a challenge with the linear economy is when we think about estimates around how many more people will be joining the middle class in the next few years. You know, some of the numbers get pretty dire. We expect something like 3 billion more people joining the middle class by 2030. And what that does to kind of material consumption and raw material consumption and the implications for businesses that rely heavily on those raw materials, that's a pretty significant impact. There are some risks associated with that. Um, You know, the constraints on raw materials, the stress that um, extra, consum- extra consumption will place on these materials will likely cause some, some price shocks, uh, increased prices of raw materials, competition for these materials, and inevitably we, we think that there will be some supply chain disruption. So you can see why for companies that rely heavily on raw materials, 
um, these these trends, uh, these kind of population trends, are likely to cause quite a bit of challenges for the future. So, you know, the linear economy, like I said, is has been okay for the last few years, but it's certainly not sustainable in the long term. That makes perfect sense. Now let's uh, let's pivot to the circular economy. I'd like for you to help us understand the definition of it and some of the various attributes of a, of a circular economy and how it differs from a sustainability initiative because a lot of companies have been doing things to make their companies more sustainable, but that's not necessarily a circular economy uh, model. So help us understand all that. Yeah, you're right. You're right there, Jill. Um, so a, a circular economy, at the end of the day, is about decoupling growth from the use of limited resources. And that, you know, that sounds like a complicated concept, but it really it comes down to figuring out how can you, you know, create new products or services that don't rely on the extraction of raw materials. You know, so how can you decouple growth from the use of those limited resources? At the end of the day, the circular economy aims to keep products, materials, and components at their highest utility and value at all times. So how can you extend the lifespan of products? How can you extend the utility of of those products and and keep the value at the highest levels for as long as possible? That's really what lies at the core of the circular economy. And one way to think of it that I think is interesting um, and has been brought up in the past as well is the, a spaceman economy. If you think about you know, what it would take to, to live in space for, for a while, um, it, it comes down to finding solutions for subsisting with limited and finite resources. How, how would you live in space for, for a number of years? And, and let's think about those solutions and, and how you would apply those uh, here. You know, because we do have finite resources and there are ways to ensure that we use those resources as efficiently as possible. So that's, I think, one interesting way of thinking about the circular economy. Um, now, what, what are some circular economy business models? And I think that for most people, the first thing that comes to mind is, is recycling models, right? Uh, mm-hmm. taking, taking products and converting them into either the same recycling them back into that same product or to a new product. The recycling model is, is certainly one of those key circular economy business models, but there are so many other models out there that have actually nothing to do with recycling that are still circular economy business models. Uh, one of the, those interesting models, I think, is uh, the sharing economy. And, you know, the sharing economy is very much part of the circular economy. Uh, if you think about um, kind of the Airbnb uh, some ride-sharing, you know, Uber and Lyft and all the other you know, ride-sharing companies. Um, there's also some, some companies out there that, that help you share uh, hardware or, or, or tools, right? So the idea mm-hmm. behind this being how can you create a system to extend the life and utility of a product such that that product is not just sitting idle and being inefficient. So that, yeah, that's one of the examples. Now, there are a couple other things as well that count as circular economy initiatives. Um, the re- product remanufacturing or refurbishing. You know, when a product is reaching its end of life, is there something you can do to kind of you know, refurbish it or, or extend its lifetime? And, and you, Go asked, right you know, how does this, Yeah, you asked how does this differ from sustainability initiatives. And I think you know, one way to, to think of, of the circular economy uh, versus a sustainability initiative 
is that the circular economy is more about a kind of a, a business model and a framework for business initiatives. It's a way of doing business. Circular economy initiatives are sustainability initiatives, but as you said, not all sustainability initiatives necessarily relate to the circular economy. So I think that's how I would, I would think about the difference between those two. That makes perfect sense. And, you know, I I think one of the exciting things about the circular economy is that it opens up opportunities for businesses to collaborate with one another. I mean, if if the byproduct of my manufacturing process becomes the raw material for somebody else and, you know, there's a whole new sphere of collaboration amongst maybe disparate industries um, when we think about materials, the materials that go into and come out of the manufacturing process, that really gets me excited to think about the ways that companies will work together. And actually, in the case studies that you documented, and we'll talk about in a little bit, we see a little bit of that collaboration amongst different organizations. And I think that's really cool. Um, Talk to us, Thomas, about the pressure that companies are feeling, both from customers and their suppliers, to engage in the circular economy. What is it that drives customers to demand it? And on the back end of the business, what's driving suppliers to pressure companies into this business model? Yeah, one of the things that we're finding is that you know customer preferences are changing. You know, the types of products and solutions that customers are looking for and and, and demanding are shifting. There's, there's quite an evolution there. Um, we're finding that companies are increasingly looking to be offered products, uh, or rather services instead of products. Uh, we're also finding that the customers are looking to be offered services that extend the life of products rather than having to buy new products outright. So there's these trends that are happening in the marketplace around the types of products and solutions that, that companies and, and, and customers are looking for. And it's important for, for companies to pay attention to these trends because, as, as you, know, you well know and many of your listeners know, there are a number of examples of household company names that were around 10 years ago that are just no mm-hmm. longer with us anymore. Yep. You know, it was a mm-hmm. failure to adapt to these customer uh, trends and these, these changing business dynamics. So that's, that's one side of the equation, which is there are, there are these trends around uh, customer preferences and how those are changing. And they're looking for different types of products and, and services. And in fact, they're looking for services more than products. But I think another really interesting uh, pressure that is driving companies to, to pursue circular economy initiatives is that they are being pressured by their own uh, customers to to provide products and services that that kind of help them meet their own sustainability goals. As you know, there are a number of examples of companies that have uh, waste reduction goals. Mm-hmm. Some of them some of them have uh, goals of zero waste to landfill goals. So essentially, you know, as a company, we don't want to send any of our waste to a landfill. Right. So, so what do you do when you have suppliers providing you products? that are at odds with those goals, right? So we're, we're finding that a number of companies are now kind of pressuring their suppliers to, to offer services or offer products that are either easier to recycle, easier to, to take back and return into, or, and convert into something else, easier to repair or easier to extend their life. Um, so, you know, we see that as a big driver for many of these types of initiatives. 
That's, you know, and that's exciting because actually that's really, really disruptive in the best possible way. And, um, you know, it's it's not just the kumbaya sort of feel good um, <laughs> attempts that a lot of environmentalists made when they were pressuring businesses early on to adopt sustainability initiatives. This is a real business need. We have about a minute before I want to take a commercial break, but in that minute, could you just help us understand some of the risks that businesses face when they consider shifting to this new way of managing resources? Yeah, many of the risks are related to the risks that any company would take when they're transforming their business model or or kind of going through a business model strategy rethink. You know, it's, it's investments with uncertain returns. It's launching pilots and projects where you don't know exactly when you're going to see a return or if you're going to see a return on that, on that pilot. So being able to, to go ahead and, and kind of launch those initiatives without necessarily knowing all of the answers. Um, because of the, the product kind of take-back models that many of these initiatives depend on, there are issues related to uh, supplier challenges, ensuring that the products that are at the end of their life are clean enough and safe enough to bring back and return into something else. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, there's product quality issues, the supplier challenges. And you know, the other thing that I'll say that we've heard through many of the case studies that we feature in the report is that you know, these, these are initiatives that require a change management process to be in place. You know, there are some mm-hmm. real mindset challenges that can happen. So you need to ensure that your employees understand the value of these initiatives and your customers understand why you're going through them. So ensuring that you have uh, a change management buy in. Yep, buy-in and, and C-suite, you know, um, buy-in for sure. And then, you know, throughout the value chain and the supply chain makes perfect sense. We're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we have so much more to talk about with Thomas about the circular economy. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Thanks so much for tuning in. And if you're just joining us, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Thomas Singer, and he is with the Conference Board Center for Sustainability. He has just recently released a report um, that talks about the circular economy and most interesting, goes through some case studies of success with a number of companies that you will all be familiar with. We're going to dive into that in just a moment. And we're talking about how these companies have begun to adopt the circular economy business model. And actually, if you want to check out this report for yourself, you can visit the Conference Board's website at www.conferenceboard.org. So, Thomas, let's dive into these case studies. Um, Dell is one of the companies that you profiled. They have two circular economy initiatives. Let's talk about the first one. Uh, this is where they work to extend the life of their products. How are they accomplishing that and how do they measure success? Yeah, Joe, there are so many exciting initiatives that the companies are pursuing in this space. You know, some more advanced than others, some have just started, um, and some have been at it for a number of years. Dell is a great example. Um, so, you know, this initiative might seem simple at first, but actually its impact is pretty significant. This, this particular initiative is through Dell Outlet. So many of you might might be wondering what happens when you return a product uh, to Dell or to some other company? What happens to that product? Does it just go to a landfill or, you know, what, what, what's the end use of that return? So Dell Outlet actually um, works in such a way that 90% of the products that are returned to Dell are then refurbished and sold through this Dell Outlet, typically at a lower price um, for, for consumers, but with the same level of warranty as a new product. And, you know, when you think about the impact that this has, it's actually about 800,000 units per year that get processed through this refurbishment process. Um, and, you know, for the, that 10% of products that can't be you know, refurbished and, and resold, those get uh, sent to a, a, a partner for recycling into something else. So just a very simple example of the power of refurbishing a product and ensuring that you can keep it in use for, for longer. So it's a little bit of a, of a win-win. Consumers get a, a lower price on that same product, same level of warranty, and, you know, there's fewer products sent to landfills just because they were uh, sent back or returned. So a very simple That's example, but I think its, it's impact is pretty significant. Absolutely. Now, Dell's second initiative is called the Dell Reconnect Partnership, and this is something they do in conjunction with Goodwill Industries. Talk to us about that. Yeah, this is, a, this is an exciting initiative. It started about 10 years ago, where, whereby Dell partnered with Goodwill um, in this setup where consumers can bring their electronics to Goodwill for recycling. So you can just bring in your products you no longer use. We know all about e-waste and the problems associated with that, but you can bring them to a Goodwill location and recycle those for free. And that started about 10 years ago. But uh, what's really interesting, to me at least, is that about three years ago, they expanded that relationship with with Goodwill to create a closed-loop initiative. And what we mean by that is that essentially 
They're taking products, electronics that are being sent to Goodwill for recycling, bringing those back to Dell and creating new Dell products out of those recycled plastics. Um, so it's, it's, again, the closed loop concept of creating a new product out of an existing uh, same product. And right now, it's about over 90 product models are, are part of this closed loop initiative. And each of those products contain something like 15% of recycled plastic as, as part of this particular initiative. So just another example of, of being able to participate in the circular economy and uh, the importance of partnerships in doing this. You, know, you, can't, you can't really do these things on your own. There's a, and that's something we learned across the case studies that we spoke to. You, know, you can't really participate in the circular economy in silos. You have to partner with others. And in this case, it's a strong partnership between Dell and, and Goodwill. I love it. And actually, that's just one of my favorite parts, like I mentioned before, of the circular economy model, where it really does promote collaboration that, you know, companies may not have even considered, um, you know, in, in the linear economy model. I really enjoy reading about that. Now, the report mentions something that I know will pique the interest of our listeners who are into public policy. It mentions that regulations that limit the transfer of electronics across borders, particularly international borders, could adversely impact initiatives like Dell's. Can you help us understand why that's the case? Yeah, you know, when we, when we asked companies, when we polled them to understand what some of the, the big roadblocks were and some of the challenges that they were facing, one of them that came up a number of times was the unintended consequences of regulations. So if you think about environmental regulations that have been set in place for good reasons, such as you know, regulations that limit the movement of electronic waste or hazardous waste across borders, um, be it you know, national borders, be it state borders, or even across continents, you know, those regulations are in place for good reasons. And in, in some cases, it's, it's to limit um, essentially the, the dumping of e-waste into, into emerging markets. That's one reason for them. There are other reasons as well. So they've been set in place for good reasons, but there are unintended consequences that are actually hindering the, the advancement of circular economy efforts. Because if you think about one of the, the business models around the circular economy, which revolves around product take back, you know, being able to bring back a product at its end of life and, uh, and, and create something new out of it, that requires the movement of products across borders in most cases. So mm-hmm. if, if there are reg- regulations in place that that prevent that movement, it, it can really um, hinder some of these efforts. And that's, that's kind of what we heard in terms of the unintended consequences of regulations getting in the way of, of the circular economy. Mm-hmm. Well, and I know that, especially when we're talking about electronics, you know, when you mentioned good reasons for those regulations, you know, there was a, a 2020 piece a few years ago about e-waste, and that really got to a lot of people when they saw what was happening when some of our electronic waste was shipped overseas and um, mm-hmm. the women and children who were disassembling, you know, these electronics to, you know, to get the fine and precious metals and things out of them and the health impact, um, you know, that really rattled a lot of people. And so trying to differentiate between, you know, electronics that are moving for that purpose and electronics that are moving for, you know, circular economy and, and beneficial purposes is probably pretty tough. So I can see where that would you know, be a very complex public policy issue. Yeah, and it I'm calls sure. to the importance of, of, of just having uh, companies be involved in that public policy discussion and, and be able to, to shape some of the, that discussion so that 
you know, these efforts, such as the circular economy efforts, are able to take place, um, and, and that the, the original reasons for some of those regulations that were in place are also still valid reasons and, and supported. Right. Now, let's talk about DuPont, because that was a really interesting case study in your report. What are the circular economy initiatives that they've enacted? Yeah, DuPont has so many different businesses that there's just uh, a whole plethora of, of circular economy initiatives going on across the organization and across different regions in Europe, in the U.S., and Latin America. Uh, but I can talk to you about a few of them. Um, and, you know, one of the, the areas where most of their circular economy efforts are focused is around performance materials. So you think about, um, like, films, polyethylene f- films and what they're what they're doing in that area they're actually creating some blended films using bio waste and one of those uh, one of those sources that they're using is actually potato waste think about that creating films out of <laughs> potato waste um, so that's that's one example of how they're involved in the circular economy but uh, there was actually another initiative that really struck me as, as uh, fascinating which is something that they did in Brazil they were finding that there was actually a bit of a health hazard associated with these chemical bottles, these empty chemical bottles that that farmers um, had laying around. You know, they would use these chemical bottles, and once they were empty, you would find that a lot of of people were kind of using those empty bottles to refill them with water for drinking purposes. Yeah, you can see why that was a big (laughs) big health hazard. Not good at all. So there was a collaboration, and again, going back to the importance of collaboration and partnerships, um, there was a collaboration between uh, DuPont, uh, the government, and uh, a few recycling partners to set up a system whereby there were incentives given to, to farmers uh, so that they would collect those empty bottles and send them to processing partners to create, to recycle them and create new products out of those, such as, you know, pipes uh, and other items that, that would be useful in order to kind of prevent those empty chemical bottles from being used uh, for unsafe purposes. And oh, that's really the, cool. Yeah, it, it was fascinating kind of the, the work that was going on between those, those various groups. And in the last um, example I'd like to share with you for, for DuPont is actually around a meat packaging solution, oddly enough. So they, they've worked on these initiatives to reduce the weight of meat packaging, um, where by now they, they have this, this type of packaging that is 80% lighter in weight than the traditional meat packaging. But not only is it lighter, it actually doubles the shelf life of the product and therefore is wow. able to reduce you know, food waste by half. So a lighter package uh, that doubles the shelf life. Pretty interesting stuff. That is interesting. And, you know, your report details some of the challenges that DuPont faced when it comes to collaboration and consumer education. Could you give us some insight on those issues? Yeah, and, and, you know, the meat packaging example is a good way to start with that. The consumer education piece is crucial there because you can imagine how it's not exactly intuitive for consumers to to go to the store and see uh, a lightweight meat packaging, you know, with very little plastic around the meat um, and think that that is actually an effective way to package the product. Um, mm-hmm. You know, most of us would, would, would kind of go towards the bulky packaging. Oh, we think that that packaging is actually going to keep the product fresher for longer. But in fact, it's the lightweight packaging that keeps the product much fresher for longer. So there's a consumer education piece that's crucial to some of these initiatives. And that's something that DuPont found, that it was important to involve 
the marketing team to be able to educate consumers that, in fact, um, these types of, this type of packaging is preferable to the bulky packaging. Um, you know, the other piece, and again, going back to the, the importance of collaboration, some of the challenges uh, are associated with collaboration involve ensuring that there's transparency across partners, ensuring that there's open communication, and that there are clear expectations from all partners involved in these initiatives. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we heard pretty consistently was that one of the main reasons some of these initiatives can fail is when there are breakdowns in communication, when there are, you know, when there's lack of trust. Um, you know, that can be a big reason for Absolutely. That makes perfect sense, Thomas. And actually, I want to explore that in more detail because I think it's important for people to understand the pitfalls of the circular economy and that transition as well. We've got to take a quick commercial break. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this, folks, so don't go away. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us today. I want to just give you all a quick reminder that Go Green Radio is just one little part of a much bigger organization called the Go Green Initiative. And you can check us out online at www.gogreeninitiative.org. This is a nonprofit organization that I founded back in 2002. We work with schools across the globe and help them do two things 
conserve natural resources for future generations, and protect kids' health from environmental pollutants. And we do that all for no charge. We're helping schools in all 50 states and in 73 countries around the world. We'd love to have your involvement, love to have your support. So check us out at gogreeninitiative.org, and we'd love to have you get involved. Well, our guest today, in case you're just tuning in, is Thomas Singer, and he and the conference board have just released a new report about the circular economy, and we've been talking about some case studies of success of some American companies that have begun to enact the circular economy in their business model. So, Thomas, let's talk about Hewlett-Packard. They're one of the companies mentioned in your report. How has HP used the Internet of Things to aid the deployment of their circular economy initiatives? You know, it's it's interesting you mentioned that, Jill, because the Internet of Things is central to many circular economy initiatives as an enabler of these initiatives. And I think um, you know, uh, many of your, your listeners are probably familiar with this one particular initiative from HP, which is the Instant Ink initiative. Um, through, I through use Instant it myself. <laughs> oh, do you? Wonderful, wonderful. Yep. Um, and, and so you can actually add a little bit of color here as well, which is, you know, through this subscription service, if you own an HP internet-connected printer, you know, that printer will automatically recognize when it's low on ink and send you a new ink cartridge by mail. Now, mm-hmm. that new ink cartridge includes a return envelope, so you can send your old cartridges back. And what's really interesting thing here is that, you know, currently about 80% of the plastic from those old cartridges are being used to create the new ones. So you can see that kind of circular... Um, economy aspect there, the closed-loop aspect. You can also see how this is a little bit of a hybrid between a closed-loop initiative and a product-as-a-service initiative. Right? You're mm-hmm. now signing up for these subscription services. So, um, you know, besides the, that closed-loop benefit where you're recovering about 80% of the plastic from the old cartridges, there are also a few other benefits. Um, one of them is reduction in packaging. I mean, Jill, you know, if you go to a store and you look at a um, ink cartridge, it's usually a pretty big box for a small product. Yep. Yeah, and, and much of that it has to do with you know, the need to include marketing material on it, but also the need um, to kind of, it's for theft prevention reasons, right? But now yep. that you have this kind of direct-to-consumer model, you reduce a lot of that packaging. In fact, I think it's something like 60 per, 60% or so of reduction in packaging through the instant ink service. I love that. And the thing is, too, that's really great about it is, you know, before companies started taking back those ink cartridges, there was so much plastic waste that was just going into the into the landfill. And and what you said is so powerful. Eighty percent of that plastic can be recycled and renewed. And the big business benefit, of course, to people like HP or people, companies like HP that are um, creating these ink cartridges, it's cheaper in many cases to use recycled materials to create new materials than it is to go and access raw materials. Same thing's true, of course, with aluminum cans. It's so much cheaper to recycle aluminum cans than to go and mine more bauxite to create virgin aluminum. And that's one of the things that I think is so exciting about, you know, what's happening with a service like um, HP's, you know, ink services. And if you think about, you know, what I mentioned earlier about this expectation that there will likely be increases in prices for raw materials, greater competition for accessing those raw materials, being able to, uh, you know, 
have your own source of those materials through this closed loop system means that you no longer have to compete for those raw materials that are continually being stressed um, you know, through greater demand and, and, and consumption, etc. So exactly what you were just saying right now. And I think something else that's interesting about this particular initiative is that it's not actually marketed as a sustainability initiative. None of the environmental benefits are really marketed through Instant Inc., um, but, but those benefits are ingrained in the business model. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's successful because it solves a real pain point for, for users, for customers. Yeah, I mean, Jill, when was the last time you ran, a, ran out of ink at a convenient time? Right? I do not happen? even remember. Yeah, I know. And I love that, that I don't have to run over to an office warehouse somewhere to pick up ink in the middle of a project. You know, I mean, it's mm-hmm. so convenient. I love it. And I also think it was fascinated when I read about how 3D printing uh, is plays a role in HP's circular economy strategy. I love the way that new technology is a part of this. Talk to us about that aspect. Oh, 3D printing is, is exciting. It's, a, it's very much an emerging area in the circular economy. There's so much potential here. And let me tell you a little bit about, you know, why with the connection between 3D printing and the circular economy is that when you think about what 3D printing can do to relocalize manufacturing, it gets, the conversation gets pretty interesting. You know, you can now manufacture products much closer to kind of where you need them. So you cut, you cut out the impacts of, you know, transportation along across large distances. So there's that, there's that one benefit of, you know, cutting, cutting down the, the transportation costs, but also the emissions associated with that. But then what is, what is really interesting here, I think, is that you're able to now create um, spare parts on demand. You know, if you think about one yeah. of the challenges, if you think about one of the challenges of spare parts and keeping an inventory, a large inventory of spare parts for products that were maybe manufactured 10 years ago or, or longer, a lot of companies just simply can't afford to keep those spare parts in inventory. So if, if your product um, breaks, good luck finding a spare part. But through right. 3D printing, you can now print spare parts on demand so you reduce that need for inventory, and you can also help design products now for repairability, right? Because you wow. can now print spare parts on demand. So that is so it, cool. And you know, I've visited so many warehouses where there's so much electricity and you know power consumption just based on storing things. You know, and and, yeah. and the conditions under which some of these parts need to be stored. You know, the humidity and the temperature controls. And think about. Oh, I never even considered what the 3D printing could do to reduce that waste. Wow, that's exciting. Um, I want to move on to Interface because they're a modular carpeting company that you mentioned in your report. And the focus of their circular economy initiative is reducing the environmental impact of the company's raw material. So talk to us, Thomas, about what they're doing to address that issue. Yeah, Interface is, is fascinating. They've been involved in, in kind of sustainability for so many years now, um, so many years. And, and what they've been doing is, is, is really exciting, and, and, uh, and, and they've really been able to incorporate sustainability initiatives into the core of the business. And a lot of this really began with, with founder uh, Ray Anderson. At the time, he asked, he asked this following question, how would nature design a company, and what would that look like? 
Mm. Think about that. How would nature design a company and what would that look like? And the answer to that question became, you know, the circular economy, participating in the circular economy. If you think back at that, that spaceman economy example, being able mm. to subsist for a number of years with finite resources. So there was a, the point was there was an effort to design the business model around the circular economy. And what Interface has done is they've set a very ambitious goal of obtaining all of their raw materials from rapidly renewable bio-based materials or recycled waste streams by 2020. That's all wow. of their raw materials. That's pretty ambitious. Um, and I think uh, right now they're at about 60% of the way to meeting the goal. So there's a little bit still left to go, but um, quite a bit has, has been done uh, to meet that goal. And most of the initiatives revolve around you know, being able to convert old carpet backing into new backing. Mm-hmm. And it, when you look at their products, currently they've got products, you know, standard products. These are not niche green products, if you wish, you know, standard products here in the U.S. that are made of about 90% recycled content. Wow, that requires a lot of investment. And and I know that Interface, I've met with many of their folks at various gatherings and conferences, Green Build and the Green Schools National Network Conference, and, and they have really invested heavily in making this a success. And the report that you wrote makes an important point um, that the market is unable to distinguish real attempts at circularity from greenwash. And that, in fact, Interface finds this especially challenging when companies that only pay lip service to the circular economy get equal credit in the marketplace as companies like them <laughs> that have made significant investments in these initiatives. Um, and you mentioned the fact that circular economy metrics are in their infancy. Help our listeners understand this a little bit more fully, Thomas. Unfortunately, that is a big challenge here. Um, you know, greenwash is out there, and, and it represents a, kind of a, a big issue for a number of companies, especially those that are investing in many of these initiatives and, and making real efforts to, to advance circular economy and sustainability initiatives more broadly. Um, you know, there, there are companies that make unsubstanti- unsubstantiated claims, and, and it's easy to do that in a field where there are few metrics and standards. Uh, and then, unfortunately, the circular economy and initiatives around the circular economy is an area that is, is, is nascent. Uh, there aren't all that many established metrics or standards related to it, so it's, it's unfortunately easy to make claims um, that, that may not be uh, real or substantiated. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other areas, it, you know, there's been progress, significant progress that's been made. So if you think about um, you know, greenhouse gas reporting, you know, mm-hmm. now, there are, now there are standards around how do you report greenhouse gas emissions. There are, there are certainly metrics around it. So it's, it's much harder to, to kind of greenwash in that area. But in the circular economy, that still represents a big issue. But companies are making uh, efforts to kind of establish a little bit more rigor around the measuring and understanding of the circular economy. Interface, of course, is one of them. Philips is also coming up with metrics to, to understand uh, how to measure the impact of the circular economy for the business. Um, so there, there are some efforts being, being done, but unfortunately it's something to just be aware of that mm-hmm. it continues to be a challenge. Well, it is. And I know that a lot of companies, um, they're beginning to voluntarily report on ESG metrics, environmental, social, and governance metrics. And there's some aspects of the circular economy embedded in ESG reporting, but not entirely. So it really is 
you know, in its embryonic stage. And I think, you know, we'll probably see a lot more clarity and this will become a little bit more of a business advantage as it becomes clearer to investors and and to consumers who's actually doing this in a way that can be measured and who is just paying lip service. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have a lot more to talk about with Thomas. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information, about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in. And if you're just joining us, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Thomas Singer, and he's with the Conference Board Center for Sustainability. You can check out their website by opening a new tab in your web browser. Keep listening to us in this tab on voiceamerica.com, but open a new tab and go to www.conferenceboard.org. And we've been talking about a brand new report um, that has just been released. Thomas is the author, and it's about the circular economy. And we've been talking about various companies that are actually case studies of success, who've actually started to implement a circular economy business model. And I'd like to talk about Kimberly Clark. Um, They have a Right Cycle initiative. And Thomas, talk to us about how that initiative works, but also how it originated with customer feedback. Yeah, Jill, if you recall a few minutes ago, I was talking about the importance of addressing uh, you know, changing customer needs and understanding how or, or what customers are looking for and being able to supply products and services to address, address those 
those needs. And this was very much the case with Kimberly Clark. About six years ago or so, they realized that um, you know many of their hard-to-recycle products or disposable products were increasingly at odds with their customers' sustainability goals. Think about things such as um, you know, medical gloves or, or uh, medical apparel, medical garments that you would find at a hospital or at a doctor's office, things you would use once and then throw away. Um, so many of their customers were kind of feeling, well, we have, we have waste reduction goals, but these products are at odds with our, our sustainability goals. Help us figure out how we can change that. Um, so that was the, the origin of the Right Cycle Initiative, which essentially is a way in which Kimberly Clark works with customers to recover those, those single-use products, return them, work with uh, recycling partners to convert them into something new and useful. So think of like plastic shelving or storage bins, uh, whereby now those items that were being sold to customers aren't going to landfills. They're actually being used to create something else. So they, the customer can... It can now be happy that their sustainability goals are not being um, challenged by their products. And, and Kimberly Clark is also able to be kind of a solution for their customers rather than a problem. So that, that, I was, love that. that was kind of the origin of that. Well, and, and what's great about that is, of course, I mean, companies that succeed over the long haul are ones that meet their customers' needs, and especially when your customers are in the public health industry. And a lot of those organizations are beginning to understand the correlation between human health and environmental degradation. Um, it's really hard for them to continue to support a wasteful you know, mindset. And so I think it's great that Kimberly Clark has responded in that way. Um, The Phillips case is really interesting. To me, it feels like they had one of the most significant changes in mindset around what their business really is. And that led to some amazing innovations. Talk to us about the notion of Phillips seeing light as a service versus a product. Yeah, you know, about five years ago, uh, there was this kind of strategy session taking place at Philips where they they started thinking about what would they have to do, what would be necessary for them to remain in business and remain relevant for, say, another 125 years or so. And they quickly realized that, you know, in in a planet expected to have 9 billion people by 2050, they had to do something different. They couldn't continue to, re- to rely on extracting raw materials for creating their products. The, the business model had to shift. And so this kick-started uh, Philips' circular economy initiatives. And a big one, uh, they're, they're involved in a number of different things, but a big one is this shift towards a light-as-a-service model. You know, for many years, the focus um, for Philips Lighting has been selling light fixtures, you know, selling uh, big lighting equipment to, to warehouse customers, for example. But increasingly, they're now focusing on, rather than selling the product, selling these service agreements whereby customers get, um, they get maintenance, they get upgrades to lighting, but Philips continues to retain ownership of that lighting fixture. And there are three benefits to that. Uh, one is, well, for customers, it's much easier to swallow a, a, an, an operating expense rather than a capital expenditure. You're not buying a massive piece of equipment. But uh, on the Philips end, there's also greater insight into customer usage of these products. You know, you are able to understand how customers are using the products, uh, what their pain points are, and, and therefore taking those learnings back to their innovation and R&D teams and creating new products based on those findings. And then third, the environmental benefits are pretty clear because 
for Philips, there's a real incentive to ensure that those products are not replaced as often as they might have been in the past, to be able to extend the replacement cycle and therefore offer um, lighting fixtures that are as energy efficient as possible and that can, can last a long time. Well, and one of the things that I really appreciate, and this kind of comes from, you know, my background with working with municipal solid waste authorities and what have you, but, you know, when you are trying to deal with lighting fixtures, particularly the bulbs, no matter whether they're incandescent all the way to LED, you know, if you're talking about collecting them customer by customer, you know, hotel by hotel, it's it's a lot more difficult to manage the resources involved in those products than I imagine that it would be when Philips just takes charge of that and they're able to collect, you know, any discarded products and deal with them in mass and that you typically you get a better solution when you're talking about material recovery recycling and and end of life use when you have a good quantity of the material to work with it just is so much more cost efficient so i can imagine that being a huge huge benefit and speaking of waste management actually the company waste management was uh, one of the case studies that i found really intriguing their circular economy initiative started when they noticed that landfill volumes were going down which in many respects is a good thing for society because when landfills become landfills then we have a problem Um, but waste management realized that was going to impact their business model, how did they respond to that data? Yeah, ex- exactly, Jill. So, you know, landfill volumes decreasing is really at odds with, uh, you know, a core business model that depends on, on landfill waste. Um, so they were mm-hmm. seeing that, you know, they were seeing this trend around customers increasingly having these zero waste to landfill goals. So the question became, you know, were these long-term trends, were they short-term trends, and what was the risk of, of inaction, of not doing anything about it? So it became pretty clear to, to senior management at Waste Management that something had to be done, the business model had to shift, and that the circular economy would be, would be crucial, really, for remaining relevant to customers in the long term, especially in the face of these these trends, these, these uh, sustainability goals and these waste reduction goals. So back in the early 2000s, the traditional landfill business accounted for about a quarter of waste management's revenue. Now, green services, which you know, include things like recycling, but also more sustainability consulting type of services, account for half of waste management's wow. revenue. That's a significant shift. Yeah, and, and I think the other thing that's interesting here is that where some of the early initiatives around the circular economy involved you know, finding new uses for waste materials, what, mm-hmm. what they're doing now is, is um, in addition to that, they're actually collaborating further up the value chain with customers and helping designers and manufacturers identify either materials that have a lower environmental impact or, or identifying ways to create products that are more easily recyclable at the end of life or that don't have to go to landfill. So that is a totally different way of looking at the business than they were in the past, all thanks to you know, the circular economy. Well, and what I love about that is that they're almost creating a consulting business um, that will help other businesses understand what happens to your stuff when it goes to a transfer station? What happens to your stuff when it goes to the landfill? I know that, you know, with a lot of manufacturers of supposedly compostable materials, what they don't realize is that, or what they didn't realize early on was that if that stuff ended up in a landfill instead of in a compost facility, it didn't compost because they cover up the landfills with, you know, alternative daily 
you know, covers. And, and that compostable material biodegrades much slower than what the customers and even the companies realized. And so um, I know that that's a big discussion point um, and a big opportunity to educate businesses and consumers. And so I, I'm a hats off to waste management for engaging at that level. Well, Gosh, I wish we had another hour to talk with you, Thomas, but thank you so much for joining us and helping us understand the circular economy. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in as well. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.